Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, we are joined by Taylor Gibson, law clerk for Erickson Immigration Group. We discuss her week as a volunteer working with unaccompanied minors at the border. Through her account, we enter the lives and stories of those separated from their families and explore fully the conditions they're currently living in. Sometimes, to properly appreciate a circumstance, we need someone to take our hand and guide us through the reality. I'm Ian Gaines. Come join us beyond borders. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today we have Taylor Gibson, law clerk for Erickson Immigration Group. It's a pleasure to have you. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. Great, great. Thank you. So recently you were actually at the border working and volunteering at detention centers. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your experience there? Absolutely. So how I heard about this opportunity is I am a rising third-year law student at the American University Washington College of Law. And because I'm a law student, I get emails from the American Bar Association. They put out a call probably, I would say, in early June. And they said that they were looking for volunteers to come down to the border and do intakes, specifically with unaccompanied minors. I actually have done something like this before. This past summer, I responded to an American Bar Association call for volunteers to work with separated families at the height of this family separation uh, crisis down in Dilly, Texas. And so I knew that they were willing to have law students. I knew that Um, They required a person to have Spanish-speaking abilities, and I have both of those things. So I reached back out to the ABA, and I said, "Um, here's my availability. I would love to be able to come down and volunteer. And they reached back out and said, we actually have an opportunity at an organization called ProBar. That stands for the um, South Texas Pro Bono Asylum Representation Project, ProBar. And so ProBar is kind of an um, an organization that's under the umbrella of the American Bar Association. So that's kind of how this all worked out. And Mm. obviously I was interning here for the summer and... I was um, a little bit nervous about missing a few days, but um, everybody was super supportive and flexible, so that was great. So I said, um, yeah, I would love to come down. There were um, five-day opportunities available for folks, so um, I ended up leaving on a Wednesday night and coming home. I was supposed to come home on a Sunday night, but my flight got rained out, so I came home on Monday. So that's kind of like the timeline of things. Great, great. Could you tell us when you first arrived, what was the first couple of things that you had to do? Absolutely. The group demographic was really awesome and um, diverse. There were 10 folks who ended up volunteering. Eight of them are attorneys um, Mm. and about six of them are like immigration only practitioners. Um, so they do, they work at nonprofits and at firms all across the country. One person does antitrust law and does some pro bono um, immigration stuff on the side. Mm-hmm. And then there was myself, who's a law student. And mm-hmm. then there was one paralegal from um, a law school in California, and he works in their immigration clinic. Mm-hmm. So everyone had a pretty strong background in immigration, which was mm-hmm. great. 
it definitely helped with the training process. Um, so when we got there on Thursday, we had this super intensive six-hour training. And what they were teaching us about were four different areas of the law. The first and most important is something called special immigrant juvenile status, mm. also known as SIG. Mm. Um, they also talked to us about um, asylum and T and U visas. So the training kind of went into these four different areas of the law in a lot of depth and specifically in the context of talking to these minor children who came by themselves and how what questions to ask mm. in order to kind of issue spot um, for these four areas of the law. The reason why um, special immigrant juvenile status is the most common form of relief that they look for there mm. is because the requirements are that the child is under 21, um, mm. be present in the United States, unmarried, and then there's a two-part process in, in the United States. A state family court has to find that the child was abandoned, abused, or neglected by their mm. parents and that it would be against their best interest to return home. And um, and yeah, and so that's kind of um, the most common form of relief for these kids because some jurisdictions around the country will f um, find that the situations that these kids were in um, qualify as abandonment, abuse, or neglect. Sometimes in certain jurisdictions, they'll find it just because the parents, even if they were... Um, able to pay for their child during their, you know, when they were living there and they loved them and supported them just by the fact that they allowed them to make the journey by themselves. Sometimes a judge will decide that that qualifies um, right. as enough for abandonment, abuse or neglect. Right. Um, asylum, things that we were looking for primarily with this particular group were um, persecution on account of their indigenous identity or mm. religious identity or political opinion and some, some gang activity as well. So those were the things we were looking for in asylum. T visas are trafficking visas. So mm. some of these kids, unfortunately, are trafficked by coyotes when they are crossing the border. Mm. A coyote is someone who um, is paid by a, an immigrant to cross the border or to mm. make the journey to the United States. Right. Um, the trafficking has to occur in the United States. And then a U visa is for victims of qualifying crime. So we would talk to the kids about what happened after they crossed the border and whether, um, you know, they were assaulted or whether they were perhaps falsely imprisoned or, mm. or things like that. So those were kind of the four areas of the law that we were trained in with SIG, Special Immigrant Juvenile Status, being like the most prominent in what we were looking for. Got it. Got it. So um, after you do the training in those four different categories, did they split you guys off into different groups to, to work specifically with these kids? Yes. So um, the group that we ended up seeing, the 10 volunteers saw, was a group of 115 kids oh, wow. um, okay. over the course of three days. So and how many people total were um, at the center? Um, so ProBar itself has about 150 full-time employees. It's actually mm. a pretty big organization. They serve, I might get the numbers right, wrong, right. but I think 4,000 kids in the Rio Grande Valley. So wow. they right. will serve them. They also serve the entire adult population in the Rio Grande wow. Valley. <laughs> and so 
what the volunteers do is kind of like this first like screening intake process and then their full-time staff kind of takes it from there Hmm. they'll work to connect the immigrants with lawyers where wherever they're going in different parts of the country they will work on deportation defense they'll do they're kind of they do like the more in-depth on the ground representation Hmm. and they also have like a full um team that helps coordinate train um, recruit all of the volunteers so that's a huge part of what they do as well so that's kind of who was there but in terms of doing the 115 kids for the intake it was just us 10 volunteers so mm-hmm. some people got through more than others i ended up doing 16 kids but it was about like 14 to 16 each. kids each yeah. person yeah gotcha mm-hmm. gotcha so yeah tell us a little bit about the actual uh, facility mm-hmm. it's interesting you said they take care of around 4000 mm-hmm. in, in total <clears throat> and with the recent sort of bills that's being passed to allocate i think they say like 4. Five billion, billion, yeah. one to border security, and but also the services and healthcare and other amenities. The facility itself was it, uh, you know, enough to house the children and the entire environment. So I'm going to give like a brief overview of what the process looks like when a child crosses the border to kind of answer your question. Gotcha. So when a child crosses the border and is unaccompanied, they are going to be picked up by a border patrol officer, just like most people would understand. Mm. Then when they're unaccompanied, they go into CBP custody. And that's Mm. kind of this place that we're seeing all of the headlines, all of the news about. The kids and the migrants actually call it La Hilera, which means like Mm. the ice box. It's mm. it's freezing there. Um, so I'm going to tell you like a little bit about what my kids specifically told me about mm. their experience. Most of them were there between eight and 10 days. Now, under U.S. law, a, a migrant is only supposed to be in CBP custody for 72 hours. Mm. So right away, we were taking note um, every time a kid was there for longer than three days. So eight to 10 days, what does that look like? They had no beds. None of my kids had any beds from the eight to 10 days that they were there. The reason why they didn't have any beds is because there used to be beds inside of the facility where they were located. But because of the huge influx, my kids specifically all came in May. And so at that time, there were so many arrivals that they removed all of the beds from the detention center where they were being held. Um, So freezing cold, no beds. They also... My kids told me that there was no soap or water and none of them showered or bathed the entire time that they were there, Hmm. Um, which I think has kind of correlated to the news we've been seeing about the Hmm. Trump administration saying, you know, we don't need soap. We don't need toothbrushes in these facilities. It's places where they've decided to Hmm. cut costs. And I definitely saw that being reflected in in what my kids told me. They Hmm. also... um, were kept inside the cell 24 hours a day. So there was no soccer, there was no classes, there was no time for activities. Definitely in line with what we've also been seeing in the news, the kids said that they were taking care of other kids. So the youngest Mm. kid that I saw was 11 years old. So I didn't have any younger than that, but they said that there was, you know, know, toddlers that they were taking, helping take care of. I heard a lot from from the kids I spoke to specifically that they were still hearing stories of families that had been separated who came Mm. with mom and dad and then were there alone in the same place that the unaccompanied children were. So that was definitely something that came up again and again. Mm. Um, Did they mention after staying 72 hours mm -hmm. how they were going to be taken care of after that? 
Um, so after they are held there, then they are transferred into their, I mean, they're really other privately owned detention centers, mm. but the kids call them shelters and that's what Probar uses as well. So I'm going to use the word shelter, mm. even though I think it's important to note that these are mm. detention centers that these kids are being held against sure. their will. Mm-hmm. So after their time, eight to 10 days spent in these kind of freezing awful conditions that we've been seeing about in the news they're transferred to these shelters that are um, private contractors that have a contract with the u.s government and they get paid you know millions of dollars every year to kind of provide these services yes exactly when kids are unaccompanied um they will then be transferred to these shelters and they usually have to wait anywhere from a month to two months for a sponsor in the United States to be vetted in order to pick them up to take them from the shelter. So there's kind of a different tiered process depending on whether it's mom and dad coming, aunt or uncle, or like a close family friend. The closer they are related to the kid, the the sooner that they'll be able to leave. Um, Mm -hmm. So while they're in the shelter, the specific shelter that my kids were at was called Baptist Child Family Center, BCFS. For those who saw the Wayfair um, protest, Wayfair is a furniture company that recently staged a walkout. Wayfair employees were protesting the fact that their company was selling furniture to BCFS. Mm. BCFS is the largest um, shelter operator currently in the United States. So they house, I think it's like 80% of unaccompanied um, Mm. children in the United States. While they were at the shelter, the kids said that um, things were better than they were in CBP custody. They were eating regularly. They were bathing regularly. They got phone call every day that they could talk to whoever was in the United States and and coming to sponsor them they also get counselor services um i'm sure they have more staff there too exactly exactly Mm -hmm. um we've been seeing headlines though in this past week that the shelters are saying and specifically bcfs is saying that they have a lot more capacity to take kids and they're not really sure why cbp is keeping the kids for eight to ten days they're Mm -hmm. saying like you know, we have all this room, we have this space. Why aren't you able to process in the 72 hours if we're able to kind of take the kids off your hands? Yeah. So that's definitely something that's been in the news as well. So that's kind of the process. Um, the kids will cross, they get picked up by Border Patrol. Um, something that's interesting that I didn't really expect when I was going down there was that all of my kids um, cross the border with the intent of finding a Border Patrol official and turning themselves in. They were Mm. never trying to cross and then, like, find their family in the United States. Like, they were waiting kind of to get picked up. They knew that as soon as they did, they would be entered into the system, that they would be reunited with their families here in the United States. So Mm. I thought that was really interesting. So they present themselves to Border Patrol. Um, They are then held in CBP custody for that eight to 10 day period when it's only supposed to be 72 hours. And then they're transferred to these private contractor shelters where they wait for one to two months before a family member comes and picks them up. Got it. Got it. Hmm. So that was what you were sort of working on for Mm -hmm. the rest of the day. So you was there for four Four days days, total. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, So the first day is really just a a day of training Mm -hmm. and sort of meeting your uh, the the kids that you was going to work with. What happened the last three days? Yeah. Kind of how it works is mm. we, the shelter um, brought the kids to pro bar offices. And that was different than what I did last year. Last year, I actually entered into the detention center. I went through, like they have private contractors who have a security force. And I was going into the place where they were sleeping and eating and, mm. um, and kind of entering into um, those facilities. 
in order to make it easier for like background check purposes, what ProBar does is they have the shelter. So BCFS brings the kids to ProBar offices. And so we are kind of in like a very nice office setting, which is really important because um, you meet a kid, you know, you get assigned your first case and um, in a very short amount of time, you have to ask this kid about the worst thing that has ever happened mm. to them. You have to ask them, why, why did you come here? I would start each interview by explaining, you know, who I was and, you know, what point they were at at the process. Yeah. And then I always began with the same statement. I would say, leaving your home and your family is the most difficult decision that anyone mm. can have to make. Can you tell me what was going on at home that made you decide to come here? And so then we would kind of just go through a lot of questions about their family life, their home life, and they would tell me, you know, this is what was going on at home. This is why I decided to come. Um, So some of the stories... A little bit about who who the demographic of the kids. So of the 115, 111 were from El Salvador, Honduras, and Nicaragua. And no one from Mexico was there, no one from anywhere else in the world. So that's who we were seeing. Interestingly enough, two of my kids actually spoke indigenous languages. And when you have an indigenous language, I would have to call into a translator service. And the translator would go from their indigenous language to Spanish to me. So then I was translating. Uh, yeah. yeah w- without any specifics, could you mm-hmm. give some examples of Absolutely. the reasons why they left? So I would say like a story that particularly struck me was a child from Guatemala and he, a lot of the kids in Guatemala, they're, uh, um, when they're asked, you know, how much school were you able to go to? Are you, st- were you still in school before mm-hmm. you left? They would say, saque sexto. And that means I, it's a very common phrase in Guatemala. It means they went up to sixth grade. Mm-hmm. The reason why a lot of them stop at sixth grade is because school is no longer free after you, after oh, wow. you, you pass sixth grade. Sixth grade. Wow, and okay. so actually all of my Guatemalan kids, none of them had gone past sixth grade. Wow. Um, mm-hmm. I had two Guatemalan kids who spoke indigenous languages. And so you know, one of my kids said, I went up to sixth grade. I've been working in the fields ever since. My father lost his leg in an agricultural accident. Wow. They were, mm-hmm. Their family was farmers, and he was one of eight kids. Mm-hmm. So he said, my family loved me very much, um, but I was forced to, you know, work in the fields every day. And eventually they had to send me away, and I was, I was begging in the streets for a short period of time before mm-hmm. I left. Then, um, so he, you know, made the difficult decision to come to the United States. On his way, he was actually on the train in Mexico, which is sometimes they call it La Bestia, the beast. Mm -hmm. He was on the train and he told me he witnessed, you know, a man lose his legs. They were run over. Mm -hmm. And this young man actually lost his eye on the train. Mm -hmm. After losing his eye, he was detained by the Mexican police force as we've also seen in the news that um, Mexico has been encouraged by the United States to increase their number of police force who's working on kind of immigration enforcement efforts. Right. Mm-hmm. He was picked up by the Mexican immigration enforcement, placed in a detention center, I would describe it as, or maybe just like a, a migrant camp. And his eye became infected while he was there. And he mm-hmm. was just kind of waiting and waiting. And he was, you know, assuming eventually he was going to be deported to Guatemala. So while he was in this camp, he told me that he saw a Guatemalan official who was visiting the camp to see kind of the conditions and things. And he said he just approached the official and said, I just lost my eye on the journey here. I'm only 13 years old. I'm going to die if I stay here. And the Guatemalan official actually put him on a bus back to Guatemala that day. 
He said as soon as the bus dropped him off in Guatemala, he got out and turned around and came right back. So he ended up crossing successfully. Mm. But I would say his story was kind of reflective of the conditions that a lot of kids lived with, often abject poverty, lack of education, education. really difficult work, Mm -hmm. the difficulties of the journey, and then kind of the uncertainty of who they were going to reunite with. He had um, an aunt who he hasn't seen since he was born living Mm -hmm. in Florida who he was going to reunite with. So that was kind of like um, a story that definitely particularly struck me. Wow. Wow. I I think uh, a lot of people they don't realize the the actual stories and the the background that people are coming from and it's a lot of real situations mm-hmm. i didn't know that guatemala only you know has free education up until 6th grade yep um and so that means a lot of kids 12 13 years old that's where it ends there and Absolutely. have to work out in the, in the farms and mm-hmm. help the family right now if people would like to get involved and help uh, similar to what you've done, how can they get involved? So I would say that attorneys and law students would able to be to do the same type of volunteering that I participated in. And I would say the best way to do that would to be, you know, look for the American Bar Association's website and they have um, a page for the South Texas Pro Bono Asylum Representation Project Pro Bar where I was. But they also have chapters, you know, all across the country. They have the one in Dilly, Texas that I went to last year. Mm. Those are um, like legal opportunities that are definitely um, available. Also, I I volunteered at the Catholic Charities um, shelter that houses migrants who have been recently released from detention, and they serve that population for, you know, anywhere from five to ten days after a migrant is released from um, custody and while they're waiting to get on a bus to go throughout the country wherever their family may be. Hmm. So I kind of served food at that shelter and helped out there. So Catholic Charities and other organizations who are doing this work to kind of house and feed families while they are waiting to go to their final destination is also a really great way to get involved. Um yeah, those are the ways that I can think of. Well, thank you, Taylor. Uh, I definitely appreciate you coming here. A lot of the perspective is not being on the ground, right? It's, it's theoretical. I think it's very important for people to understand the actual lives and the conditions that people are living through to get a, a more personal perspective. So appreciate you taking out the time. Thank you for allowing me to share their stories. For more content and immigration updates, please visit our website at eiglaw.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter at EIG underscore law and our Instagram underscore EIG law to join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. See you next time.